Imagine discovering a squirtle hiding along the waterfront in San Francisco, or a Bulbasaur at Shinjuku Station, or even Pikachu hiding by the Eiffel Tower. Welcome to Moonshot, the show exploring the world's biggest ideas and the people making them happen. I'm Christopher Lawson. And I'm Andrew Moon. And you've just listened to Niantic CEO John Hankey announcing their game Pokemon Go at a press conference in 2015. Pokemon Go took the world by storm, with 130 million players downloading it in the first month alone. We're back now with something that may explain any odd behaviour you've seen on the streets recently. The smash hit mobile game app Pokemon Go has only been on for a few days. But it's already got millions following their smartphones to the most random places. Millions of people walked around their neighbourhoods and cities trying to find digital creatures hidden in everyday places. Pokemon Go uses the GPS data from your cell phone to let you track Pokemon in the real world. We're in Central Park. And in the process, it set five world records, becoming one of the most downloaded apps in its first 30 days, topping charts around the world and grossing more than $100 million in revenue. And according to Apple, the Nintendo nostalgia has already led to over 30 million downloads, with more in the first week than any other app ever. Augmented reality, or AR, takes elements of the virtual world and places them into our physical real world. And Pokemon Go brought augmented reality to the public on an unprecedented scale, becoming many people's first experience using the technology. Most people have moved on from playing Pokemon Go, leaving a dedicated core group of players. So how is AR going to make the leap into everyday life, and what will that future look like? We'll find out right after this. You know, a lot of people thought, oh, that was just like amazing overnight success. It just came out of nowhere and suddenly everybody was playing this. Uh, but if you study this field, you know that, that Pokemon Go was not, by far, was not the first what we call ARG, alternative reality game. This is Ted Shilowitz, the futurist in residence at Paramount Pictures. His job is to take emerging technology and experiment with ways that it can shape the future of entertainment. We spoke with him at the Magnify World Conference in Melbourne. The same company that created Pokemon Go created another game that was very popular called um, Ingress. And um, Ingress had millions of users and still does. It didn't get quite to the scale of Pokemon Go, but it was a, a much more sophisticated game than Pokemon Go that people had to really put a lot of energy and time into if you really wanted to play it. But it's, it's the bones of what Pokemon Go was sort of built on. And before that, there was a uh, phone-based technology that we simply just called geocaching, which was like the world's scavenger hunt. And that's kind of like the base core technology that Ingress and Pokemon Go were built on is the idea that you can kind of map the world with your phone and it would know where you are in the world. Now, Pokemon Go put AR on the map, but the technology has been around since the 1990s. It's pioneered by Boeing's Tom Cordell and David Mazel. They were asked to come up with a replacement for expensive schematics that factory workers used to build wiring systems for Boeing's aircraft. 
Tom and David proposed a head-mounted system which would project the blueprints directly onto the workspace. Workers would receive customised instructions from a central computer, replacing the inefficient and costly analogue solution Boeing had used until then. Tom coined the term augmented reality when developing their solution, but it's a concept that has only become a reality in the past few years. In 2016, when we started shipping HoloLens, it really set the high watermark for what was possible in terms of a untethered, self-contained, uh, hands-free holographic computer. This is Greg Sullivan. He's a director of communications at Microsoft. And I get to work on our mixed reality stuff, which means HoloLens and, uh, and the, uh, the software that lights it up. So it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. Microsoft's HoloLens is a headset device that you wear to project images right in front of your eyes. It kind of looks like a space age mask that you may have seen in Ready Player One, although it doesn't actually take you out of the real world. I've actually tried a HoloLens, and in many ways, it's like putting on a very futuristic ski mask. You put the headset on, and then you're presented with a menu that you can use to open different apps. And you select those apps by putting your hands out in front of you and making gestures. I was looking at a cross-section of the human body that medical students could use to learn about anatomy. Overall, the experience is really great and you can really feel the potential of this tech, but it's very limited by its size and also the field of view, which only covers around 35 degrees, meaning most of your vision doesn't actually include digital overlays. So I still felt like the experience was still somewhat disconnected from the real world. You might have heard Greg refer to the HoloLens as mixed reality instead of augmented reality. See, AR is just one piece of the puzzle when it comes to alternate reality. Another one you might have heard of is virtual reality. VR builds a virtual world around you, replacing your entire field of vision with a computer-generated one. And some of the more highly developed VR experiences create a 3D soundscape too, building a fully immersive digital world. Mixed reality is everything between the real world and building a virtual reality. Now this includes AR, which takes the real world and places virtual information over the top. To us, this continuum exists between the real world and the digital or the virtual world. And, and the view is that anytime you have some of the real world and some of the digital world meaningfully uh, blended together, you're, you're mixing realities. And, and let me give you a couple examples of, of this continuum. At, at one end of it, you can have something like Google Glass, I would say, is, is the very simplest idea of you have a real view of the world that or the environment that you're in, and you have a system that sprinkles in just a tiny bit of digital information that may or may not be world or directionally locked. So depending on where you look, it might change. But in any case, you're sprinkling in a little bit of the digital realm into your primarily real view of the world, or you are augmenting reality. If you, tra if you traverse that continuum all the way to the other end, where you are almost at the 100% virtual or digital, um, this is a, these are the immersive systems where you can't hear the sounds of the real world. You only hear the digital sounds. You have a, a headset on that blocks off your, occludes your view, and so you're immersed in this digital realm. But our view is that even in those environments, the, the 
environmental awareness of the system, the headset that you're wearing, knows where the floor is and incorporates that into your virtual experience. It knows where the walls are, most likely, and prevents you from walking into them by translating that somehow into the virtual experience. I guess we fall under the banner of an, a technology studio or an XR company. XR is a term that's recently been coined in the industry more around, uh, I guess it's an umbrella statement that encompasses a couple of different uh, alternate realities being AR, VR, and MR. That's Joseph Purdom. He's the experiential director at Foria, a company that designs augmented reality experiences, but also works in other realities too. Uh, we have done some AR implementations where we've, I guess, translated across existing projects that have an entertainment value. Uh, we've just sort of done that as in, in good faith as something uh, that we could contribute. But in the virtual reality space, we're running several clinical research trials uh, initially around using VR as a pain and anxiety management tool in youth oncology with the Royal Children's Hospital and our research partners, Murdoch Children's Research Institute. We started that project over two years ago and the appetite for uh, virtual reality and I guess these kinds of immersive media solutions as, as healthcare interventions, it, you know, it was, they were pretty scared about implementing these kinds of things because there weren't many examples of it out there at that point. It's really nice to look back now and see that there's five or six simultaneous VR-related projects running just within the children's hospital. Foria has been developing augmented reality media since 2014. Even in such a short amount of time, Joseph has seen rapid growth in the technology and demand for AR. What has changed the most for us, I guess, is the tool set has evolved massively and the marketplace has evolved as well. So the types of experiences that we're able to produce and facilitate through AR and VR are much more refined, in-depth, interactive experiences. When the HoloLens was released to the public, there were a handful of AR games that came alongside the system. One of them stood out from the rest. Uh, there's an experience called Fragments in HoloLens where it's basically like a murder mystery sort of thing and characters come up and look you in the eye or they sit on the couch next to you and it's that level of you know, interaction with the environment and the, the blurred line between reality and the experience that, that you're absorbing through these headsets. I think that's the most interesting direction to take this. It's actually fairly functional and dynamically relatively achievable to do that in a mixed reality environment where you could have a crime scene play out in your living room or in your office or, or in a train station and you have to go and pursue that and figure out the clues and work through the, the story dynamics. That's Ted Shilowitz again. He sees the HoloLens as a strong beginning to developing AR hardware, but insists there's a long road ahead. It's not a mainstream device yet. It's relatively expensive for what it is and, and it's really, you know, it hasn't kind of captured the imagination of everybody yet. But there are plenty of them out there in the world. Um, if you can get one and play that, you'll be well on your way to learning about the possibilities of storytelling in a, in a spatial universe, in a mixed reality spatial universe. Now, HoloLens isn't the only mixed reality device on the market. There's also the much-hyped Magic Leap 1, which tried to package all the technology into a smaller headset that more closely resembles some oversized sunglasses. And Facebook's Oculus have also been producing a number of lower price point headsets for virtual reality applications, which have the potential to open up a mass market. And Ted says that with all of the technology that's becoming available, the future of mixed reality devices looks a lot different than it does today. It's not wearing a big box on your face and playing games. 
that's one little, little fissure of what's really going to happen when we actually start wearing the right device in the right way that connects to our humanity correctly and our iPhone or Android phone finds its way into a drawer and you're like, yeah, I used to use that thing, but I don't use that anymore. I have something better, more interesting, more evolved. Many industry insiders say the technology is still in its early stages and will be radically different in the future. But for now, the most immersive experiences we have are confined to a wearable headset. Yeah, I guess like MR and HoloLens are heading in the right direction. I don't think that they've completely solved it with things like field of view limitations, but I think that that's the best foot forward for immersive technology at this point. Uh, there's still ways to go, and I mean, HoloLens 3 is reportedly coming out end of this year, start of next, so I think that'll be a, another really big leap forward. New headset developers aren't the only ones on the AR train. The next step in augmented reality is already underway and there's no cumbersome headset involved. Apple's AR Kit and Google's AR Core are new platforms that seek to contain the whole experience within your smartphone or tablet. Obviously with AR Kit and AR Core coming out, uh, you can see really big tech companies like Apple and Google uh, you know, doubling down and investing in this space. Uh, so especially with our, our relationships with Google, we've had early access and to some really interesting tech stacks that are allowing us to produce you know, incredible experiences like shared, persistent, uh, markerless AR experiences that just weren't possible. The tech stack wasn't there four years ago. But with so many branches of augmented, virtual and mixed reality, it's not only a little confusing to the outside observer, it's become a real challenge to tie them all into a single unifying experience. So if you have a phone that's, you know, an iPhone 6S or say an iPhone 7 or newer, Android back to about the S7, you can use AR, markerless AR to project into your environment if you're on an MR headset it's easy it does all the room scale tracking for you projecting to your environment in VR you create um, I guess an environment that you could project that into so building content that works completely ubiquitously across those platforms I think is is also a really interesting prospect rather than being limited to where the technology is at whether you know there's always this conundrum of do you build technology that everyone can access or do you build something that utilizes the most the latest and greatest hardware and I think if you can do both that's ideal. Here's Greg Sullivan again outlining Microsoft's goals with HoloLens. In general, the trends that we're trying to achieve in some ways are, are, are three almost mutually exclusive goals. But we also need to, um, uh, we need to do all of them in a way that, uh, um, that doesn't sacrifice any one. And those goals are really to make the, the technology more immersive, more comfortable, and more affordable. We... we and, and it's easy to do, you know, one of those or perhaps even two. Um, but to, to do all three of them is the real challenge. And we'll continue to look at what an augmented reality future will look like right after this break. One way that people are familiar with is, is something as simple as, you know, I download the Pokemon Go app on my phone and I play it. We, we would argue that is a very, that's a, a simple augmented reality experience. 
Welcome back to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson, and when it comes to augmenting reality, the technology is just one piece of the puzzle. The end goal is an immersive, interactive user experience, and as we heard earlier, the original concept of AR was designed around aircraft. If you are, uh, you know, an aircraft mechanic at Japan Airlines, you would use a HoloLens to learn how to work on an aircraft engine, and it would be a digital holographic aircraft engine. So that means you could do things like stand inside it when it was running um, and learn how the systems interoperate and, and, and evaluate it from kind of inside. There are a whole bunch of advantages to doing something like that, but most people aren't Japan Airlines aircraft mechanics. But while AR might be a great way of learning how to fix an engine, the effectiveness of AR in the long term is certainly not limited to just the field of engineering. And Greg Sullivan sees the technology being applied in other, more traditional industries like retail. You're already seeing kind of the the digital and physical worlds um, blend in, in some really interesting ways. And so I think for most average people, whether your your first experience with this is going to it might be going to a VR arcade and playing a game where you're immersed in this alternate universe and you can move around in it and and um, it offers you this fully immersive 360 degree experience. That's kind of what most people think about when they think about VR or or mixed reality today from a consumer standpoint. But the the ways in which this technology trend will manifest are are, are varied. It'll be uh, on the you know on the floor of a of a retail um, establishment where you know they they don't want to um, have people slip on something wet that spilled in an aisle and today that is actually a considerable challenge for some for for some large retailers and so what they have to do is wait for a customer to slip on some th- the the spilled item or or wait for an employee to find it and 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 mop it up but imagine if you had sensors in your store that had the superpower of perception. They could see in three dimensions. They had a flight time of flight depth sensor that could differentiate between a less than one millimeter thick puddle of water on the floor and the regular waxed floor. And be based on that awareness could send a, an alert to the custodian to quickly get there and mop up that spill before a customer slipped and fell and, and you have all kinds of other problems. A project that we did for City of Melbourne last year, Santa's Little Helper, was definitely an, an entertainment-focused experience for the user. Uh, but the motif behind it was more a dispersed visitor strategy for the City of Melbourne. This is Joseph Purdom again. So the idea was by giving the user rich AR interactions in various spaces throughout the city, could we disperse them and actually get them to travel to places that they wouldn't go to otherwise? And so while the user experience is an entertainment-based experience, the driving factor for the client is actually something much more dynamic. And Ted Shilowitz sees so much potential in the technology that he thinks it could lead to people completely reimagining storytelling in entertainment. It's essentially the beginnings of learning about simulation behaviour, about turning entertainment into simulations and, and not just traditional story-based, cinema-based language narratives. Um, So it's a bit like learning how theme parks take you on journeys and tell you stories along the way with that journey, with physicality, and how to apply that into a home-based or, you know, commercial-based medium 
that can go to a much wider scale. Ted also says the future is much sooner than people think. After all, we've been learning simulation behaviour for some time now. And I kind of make the point that we have now for at least 10 years been firmly in the art and creation of simulation-based behaviour. So everything we do as humans that used to take certain degrees of physicality Writing a letter was a physical thing. You took out a piece of paper, you wrote it with a pen or a pencil, you put it in an envelope, you put it in a stamp, you took it to the mailbox, you mailed it. It's a physical behavior. If you wanted to like know what was coming up on your calendar, you went to the wall and you flipped around on a calendar that was on the wall, or you looked at this thing called a day planner, which was like a little book. It had physicality, right? If you wanted to plan a trip, you opened up a map on a big piece of paper and you folded it out on the table. It had physicality. If you wanted to take a picture and then share that picture with people, you used analog devices and you took a picture and then you would either mail that to somebody or put it in a photo album and show them. It all had physicality to it, right? Then we moved into an age where the digital transformation started to replace physicality with a simulation. So now when we actually look at our calendar, we're not really looking at our calendar. We're looking at a digital simulation of our calendar inside this little four-inch shard of glass that we hold in front of our face all day long. When we want to look at and share pictures, we do that in a simulation. When we want to send an email, when we want to communicate in almost any way, shape, or form, we do it in some sort of simulation behavior. We don't really do it anymore. We do a digital simulation of it, right? And we've buried all of that inside a tiny little device that we carry with us that is effectively the biggest screen we can get and still put in our pocket. That's kind of what we've created. That's the, the art of where we've gotten so far. And what I believe is we're getting ready to kind of emerge out of that cocoon. That's the caterpillar stage, right? It's like it's all inside this little caterpillar-based device. And we're getting ready to become butterflies. We're getting ready to, like, turn it into this amazing, remarkable world where when the device gets light enough and nimble enough and smart enough and effective enough, we're not just going to hold it. We're going to wear it. And when we can wear it, we can remove the small simulation behavior, and then enter an age where we're now back to big behavior, but it's simulated. So it's that digital sort of transition is going from like the pinch point in the hourglass to the other side of the hourglass where things can be gigantic and all around you, just like the real world, only we're going to do a digital layer onto the real world. And that's kind of what's so intriguing to me about the real opportunity around this. And for the millions of people around the world who downloaded Pokemon Go, walked outside and set off in pursuit of their neighborhood Charmander, they literally had that caterpillar to butterfly experience for themselves. And for the developers and creators, it showed that there was real commercial potential in the AR space. I think it had an impact on anyone who works in this kind of immersive technology space because it it gave everyone a common ground and terminology for the validity of the technology. So it allowed us to have conversations with clients where before they'd never heard of AR, Pokemon Go was at least something that they could ground their presumed knowledge in. I guess, I mean, I was probably one of the only people who didn't play it um, religiously. I downloaded it, but didn't get too far. I was a fan of the original Pokemons, but I found it was, as an AR experience, pretty, it was a little bit gimmicky like it was really just looking through the lens of your camera it didn't assume ground planes it didn't actually do any like environmental calculations like what a modern AR application would do um, so I, I found it like while while it was amazing for actually you know bringing AR into the forefront of people's thoughts and and 
giving AR a platform to stand on in a way. Um, I think what so Niantic are now working on the Harry Potter game and I think now with the kind of persistence and shared AR capabilities that are out there along with like being able to build um, AR kit and AR core, do like multiple wall and ground plane detection and so you can have a table detected and then a ground plane detected and a wall behind them detected. You can have really dynamic 3D environments come to life through AR now. Um, I think that's going to be really exciting. I, I think AR... AR as it was depicted in um, Pokemon Go is, I think, pretty limited, but obviously a phenomenal app for the whole industry as a, as a discussion point at very least. Most mixed reality technologies are still in the prototype stage or even earlier in their development. The few AR headsets currently on the market are highly expensive with many of them designed for developer use only. I asked Greg what price point Microsoft had in mind where they would see widespread adoption of their technology, and he couldn't give me a specific answer other than to say that they had one in mind, but he also suggested that it's a lot like every other emerging technology, starting out as an expensive rarity, then as time goes on, it becomes an accessible and widely adopted part of everyone's life. I'll never forget, my, my actually my stepdad had one of the first microwaves I ever saw in anyone's home. Um, and this was, you know, back in the, I guess, early 70s. In any case, the microwave was a very expensive commercial item that over time, the economies of scale were achieved. And the ROI was clear and obvious for restaurants or other commercial enterprises. But it, it took a little while for it before microwaves came into all of our homes. I think the same is true of cell phones. The same was true of the PC, the personal computer. It was, you know, it was probably comparable to HoloLens in terms of the initial price of the IBM PC back in 1981 when it launched. And the only people that had them were folks at work. It was probably the accounting department. But this tool, it cost, you know, three to $5,000, but man, oh man, it changed their lives. And it enabled them to, it gave them superpowers, almost literally. And so it took a while. Then, of course, the economies of scale kicked in and the price of those things came down and they started showing up in everybody's homes. I think this story is going to be similar. I, th um, I think we've maybe become over fixated on a specific manifestation of the technology in the context of a head mounted immersive or see through head mounted display. Um, that is but one of the ways that mixed reality technologies will start to um, come into our lives. In some ways, they'll, it'll, it'll just be easier to check out at the grocery or there'll be, um, you know, the lines at Disneyland will, will you know, flow themselves more. The, when, when, what, when what we're doing here is, is giving computers the ability to understand their environments and interact with them in ways and, and, and then put the human in charge um, to, to really benefit from that interaction of the digital world, 3D space. Um, we're just really starting to figure out the ways it'll benefit us. Moonshot is hosted by me, Christopher Lawson, and also Andrew Moon. Research and scripting for this episode by Patrick Laverick, with additional research from our intern, Caroline Ho. Our amazing cover artwork is by Andrew Millist and our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you enjoyed the show, then make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts or wherever you like to listen. And please consider leaving us a five-star review. It really helps. And if you want to support the show, then really go and check out our sponsors. You'll find links in the episode description. Thanks for listening to Moonshot and stay tuned next week as we go supersonic. Supersonic.